Welcome to the Shamrock brought to you by DirecTV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com. I'm Pete Sampson, joined as always by my co-host Matt Fortuna in Chicago. And today, special guest from Blacksburg, I believe, um, unless he's living in Richmond or something, is Andy Bitter, uh, beat writer for Virginia Tech at The Athletic, does an awesome job covering the Hokies and uh, everything that's going on down there. Andy, first, thanks for joining us. And I guess, secondly, what... um, you know, I think when Notre Dame came down there in 2018, it was billed as like this huge momentous game, at least I think maybe for Notre Dame, probably for Virginia Tech. What is what's sort of the vibe around this one with Notre Dame coming down there? Well, first, I'm coming live from Christiansburg, just south of Blacksburg. So give, give props to the uh, the local town that I live in here. Uh, I think it's an interesting matchup because this has happened so frequently in recent years. This is the fourth time they've played in six years. Uh, second time they've come in here. There are ACC teams they don't see as frequently as they see Notre Dame. They don't play Clemson this often, Florida State. Anyone not named BC on that side of the uh, the conference, they just don't see as frequently as they've seen Notre Dame recently. Now, it's going to take a couple years off before they come back here. But, you know, I, I feel like it's still a big game and a, a game that a lot of Hokies fans look forward to, but maybe lost a little bit of its luster from how unique it was the first time and going up to South Bend uh, for the first game they played there. And then when Notre Dame came down here, I think that was a really uh, raucous crowd that they had for that one that uh, got shut up very quickly early in the second half with that 90-yard touchdown run, and, and things kind of went south from there for the Hokies. So, I, you know, I, I asked some of the players yesterday, is like this still like a matchup that's intriguing to you? And they said yes, and I, I assume they would say yes. And I think once Notre Dame gets into the stadium and you see the golden helmets and all that stuff that, that comes along with Notre Dame, I think it will feel like a very big game. But um, maybe something is, is lost a little bit from this was the first time they came in here. This was the first time Virginia Tech went up to Notre Dame. I think just the, the uniqueness of it has, has worn off a little bit. Andy, I feel like um, that scene in Step Brothers right now, I'm so used to being on your show and a- answering your questions on the Atlantic and Coastal podcast. Now, I'm going to ask you questions on our podcast. And I'm curious, that defense in the post-Bud Foster era didn't get off to such a hot start last year. Um, whether you get a mulligan for the pandemic or not, I'm not so sure. But certainly a different unit this year. Obviously, week one, stymieing Sam Howell and company. Um, on that Friday night and, and, and really, in my opinion, setting the tone for, for what could be a bit of a resurgent year in Blacksburg this year. What's that unit do so well through the first month of the season? I think this year they just have an understanding of the defense. And, you know, you mentioned the COVID year last year, and that's Justin Hamilton coming in replacing, you know, 30-plus-year 30 30 plus year veteran Bud Foster. That's a tall task uh, to begin with. And then, oh, by the way, you don't get to practice all off season. And then the season starts, and they're pulling people out of your room. He said before the, uh, I think it was the Duke game in week two, they're there in the middle of practice, and somebody goes out in the field and and taps five defensive backs and takes them off the practice field because they had to go in COVID protocols. And it's just like, what on earth do you do in that situation? It just felt like they were always trying to play catch-up last year. And when you're doing that, you're not really able to do anything exotic. You're just trying to do the very basics, just get out there, just just field a team basically was the biggest challenge you know we talked to Hamilton a couple weeks ago he's like we played one defensive front all of last year there was no variety to it it was just one front he's like I wish offenses came out and just lined up in the same formation every time it'd be making much easier to defend them like that so 
you've actually had an off season this time. If you're Virginia tech, uh, the players have gotten used to the coaches and vice versa. The coaches know what the players can do. Uh, Hamilton described this year compared to last year is like last year, every meal was liver and onions. And that's just what you had. Take it or leave it. That's what you had. And this year, you can order pizza. You can order chicken. There's all sorts of varieties that they can do. They have a base understanding of the defense, and then they can do things off of that. And they can cater their defense from week to week. Now, some personnel is better, too. They get, they add Jordan Williams in the middle at defensive tackle. They get Dax Hollyfield at his natural position at Mike Linebacker. Alan Tisdale's a lot bigger at the backer spot. Uh, in the secondary, you get Jermaine Waller back at cornerback. I think that's a big deal uh, because he basically didn't play last year uh, because of injuries. So that that's somebody at each level of the defense that's new or in a position that they weren't in before or healthy. And I think just the, the collection of all those things makes this a, a pretty effective defense this year, much more effective than last year, where they, they quite frankly look pretty lost a lot of times. What uh, I was interested in sort of the vibe at – what you expect to be on Saturday night, you know, seven thirty game, you know, not ABC, it's ACC network. But like when Notre Dame was there before, it was like it was good. Um, like you said, it got quiet. Watching the North Carolina season opener from a distance, I was like, oh, okay, people are really into it again. It and for a program that I think from the outside, you're like, is there a little bit of apathy about Fuente? Uh, you know, where where the Hokies are right now. It seemed like the fan base was sort of reinvested in it. Like, do you expect a, a pretty good, you know, pretty good atmosphere on Saturday? I expect a pretty good crowd. I don't think it's going to rival that North Carolina game because you think about what that was. That was a year of pent up frustration from fans not being able to attend Hokies games last year. So everybody was looking forward to that. It was the opener. So nobody had lost a game. You had a whole offseason of optimism and, hey, they're going to turn this around and things like that. You had North Carolina, who's a team that Virginia Tech fans really hate. And, you know, last year just put it on them offensively. It was just an embarrassing loss for the Hokies that really were shorthanded on defense. But still, just, I mean, North Carolina could have picked its score last year. So I think it was that combination of things all together that just made that sort of uh, such a crazy experience uh, in Lane Stadium. That's going to be tough to duplicate. Uh, I, I think it'll be still pretty good. It's a sellout crowd. They're doing the thing where they're striping the stadium with maroon and orange T-shirts and like that. That's always kind of a cool effect they have. Uh, but I just don't know if you can repeat that kind of crowd where it's just like every play they were so into it. Uh, every single play they were very loud. They were too loud sometimes on offense. The offense couldn't hear. They had to settle them down uh, to get it going. So it just kind of felt like that was a tinderbox uh, in, in that game. And I don't know how you how you recreate that for this one, but I think – you get in the stadium, and again, you see this, the, the helmets of Notre Dame. You see the uniforms of Notre Dame. Maybe that sparks something in this crowd that's really good. Uh, it would be better if they don't give up 90-yard touchdown runs or weren't down by 20-some points in the second half. Uh, but some of these games recently, like Richmond game, that place was lifeless, and a lot of it was because the offense wasn't doing very well. Uh, Middle Tennessee, it was a lifeless. And those were afternoon games, but if the offense isn't performing and isn't performing well, I feel like that's going to suck the life out of the stadium. I don't know if you have to worry about any 98-yard touchdown runs from Notre Dame this year, at least not from the running back position. The offensive line, you may have heard, isn't all that good. But there are two very, very good backs, one of whom had a 90-something-yard kickoff return for a touchdown two weeks ago against Wisconsin. And Virginia Tech's defense doesn't look all that sound against the run so far, at least from afar. I mean, Andy, do you think there is a path for Notre Dame to at least 
get a little bit going on the ground against this Hokies defense. I think possibly. Uh, Richmond had a little bit of success there uh, for a while. West Virginia broke like an 80-yard run uh, to start that game. I think that might be where it comes is they fit a wrong gap or something like that. And then, as you mentioned, Notre Dame has the backs that can make you pay. Now, I don't know if they can open the hole for those guys to run through, but you know I've seen Chris Tyree in the open field. He's pretty dang fast. Uh, he can run away from a defense like that. And the Hokies do have a tendency every now and then to leave a gap open and you know, all of a sudden the safety's up close to the line in the wrong spot and you're, you're reading the back of the numbers of the guy going the other way. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a chance, maybe more of a chance on the swing pass or something like that than just a traditional run. But uh, they've been prone sometimes to big plays like that. They'll be curious if they can uh, shore that up this weekend. Yeah, I think you know, if you're talking about Notre Dame's weaknesses defensively, that got exposed would be too strong of a word, but it got prodded by Cincinnati. And I think it's can an offense take deep shots on the half of the field where Kyle Hamilton is not, or the third of the field where Kyle Hamilton is not, because he pretty much covers more than half of it. Is Virginia's passing game built to do that? You know, with Burmeister at quarterback, I think he's kind of kind of an average every man quarterback. Like I'm not sure there's anything that is remarkable about his skill set, but like how is how is Virginia Tech's offense set up and are they able to sort of take deep shots down the field? No okay. <laughs> is the short answer. Uh, it has been a struggle this year, and I think it's actually come as a bit of a surprise to this coaching staff that the passing game has been better because you listen to Justin Fuente at the ACC kickoff, and he, he's talking about this is the best I've felt about this passing game since I've been here in terms of anticipation and disseminating information. Then they get to the season, and they can't throw the ball worth a darn in really any situations. A lot of that falls on the quarterback and Braxton Burmeister. And I think the coaches, you know, Fuente has been very uh, diplomatic about it in press conferences. And he said, you know, we're trying to get him to cut it loose more and to throw the ball and just, you know, put it out there for receivers to make a play on it. He's been so cautious with it. And they always preach ball security and don't put it in danger and stuff like that. But it feels like it might have tipped too far the other way with Burmeister, where he's not even putting the ball out there for receivers to make a play on it because uh, they have some guys. Trey Turner can go down the field and make plays. Tavian Robinson uh, can go down the field and make plays. Jaden Payute, haven't really seen it yet, but he's like a, a very freakish athletic person that I think if you put it up there, good things can happen for you. But Burmeister is either not seeing the guy down the field or choosing not to throw it to him and then tucking it down and running. And he's a very athletic quarterback and can make, make a lot of things happen uh, with his feet, but they need to stretch a defense and challenge a defense down the field. So uh, we'll see if they solve some things during the off week here, if they uh, got him playing a little bit more loose and, and cutting it loose and throwing it down the field. But if they're not doing that, it it, it might not even matter what side of the field Hamilton is on. They, they just have to do it. They have to make a, a defense respect that because if they don't, then you're just going to stack the box and uh, the running game's not going to work either. Andy, what, what is the for lack of a better term, temperature check on Justin Fuente's seat right now. I mean, this felt like a make-or-break year coming into the season. Um, never a good sign when your AD basically holds a press conference saying we're not firing you, which is essentially what Babcock did at the end of last year. And I don't know, he may have redeemed himself so far this season. I don't know, there's a long season to go. I mean, what's are the fans invested in him and in his success, or is this one of those cases where, yeah, we uh, – We've seen it at lesser programs, right, where, where fans almost 
root for you to, to lose so you can make a change? I mean, what's what's kind of the, the vibe around Blacksburg right now with Justin Fuente? There's a faction of the Never Fuentes that are rooting <laughs> for him to lose. I don't think it's a big portion of the fan base, but it's out there. It exists. I think he came into the season feeling a little bit of heat. And obviously, you're like you mentioned, the AD doesn't come out and have a press conference about why he didn't fire you and you're not feeling some heat. Also, it's splendidly handled by Virginia Tech to announce that press conference on the day the buyout drops on Fuentes. Like, could, could you send more mixed messages <laughs> about that whether... That morning, I remember thinking, it. this is it. Like, get ready. We're going to do a oh coaching gosh, search for Virginia ridiculous. Tech. I'm like, just a little bit of messaging would have helped that whole uh, process there. But then he comes into the opener, and they beat UNC. And they, they win in a way that you wouldn't even have thought they would have won with defense and completely shutting down that Sam Howell offense. And after that, everybody's like, he's off the hot seat. He did it. <laughs> Cooled the temperature. And since then, they haven't really been able to do anything on offense. They go up to West Virginia and lose, which if you're a Virginia Tech coach, don't do that. That's not going to go over <laughs> well with the fan base. And they were very upset about that. They don't like losing to, you know, as they call them, the cousins up there in West Virginia. They give the Black Diamond Trophy back to them for the first time since 2003, I believe. So uh, it felt like after that game, the way they lost that game where they were inside the five-yard line three different times and came away with zero points, including at the very end after a gift interception sets them up to win the game at the end. It's like... This is year six, and this offense is not hitting on all cylinders. Not not even that. It's not even coming close to being average right now. Uh, I think that just brought back, it's like, why? This is his specialty, his offense. This is what he was supposed to do. Is they weren't going to have to play perfect defense to win every week. That was his what he promised Bud Foster in the hiring process. And now it's year six, and they're close to having to play perfect defense to win, it seems like. So... Uh, I think we're back to the point where every game feels like a referendum with him. And if they win, it's like, okay, he won. We'll see how it goes at the end of the year. If they lose, it's Armageddon. It's the end of the world. And uh, they're never going to turn the corner with this guy. Ultimately, I think it comes down to like how they finish at the end of the season. I mean, that sounds dumb to say because that's pretty obvious with stuff. I, I don't think Babcock's going to do anything rash during the season. He's not that kind of athletic director, but... You know, if they're eight and four and in the coastal mix, that's a pretty good season after a five and six mark last year. If they're seven and five, six and six, I feel like you're in year six and you're looking around going, what's changed? What's improved with this program? Is there not anybody that can do better than this? Uh, So that'll be interesting if it gets to that point. But for his sake, you better win some of these games because that will get the fans off his back a bit more. I thought uh, I thought only Notre Dame everything was a referendum on everything at all the times, and and it was Armageddon after every loss. I'm just I'm I'm shocked that this happens at other places. It, well, it happened at Auburn when I covered Auburn for a while. Trust me on that, and it's <laughs> it's very true. Once you get past the uh, Hall of Fame coach, and even sort of the end of Frank Beamer's run here at Virginia Tech, it felt like every game was a referendum and. Is Frank too old to keep doing this? Is, is he past his prime and stuff? So I feel like sort of been stuck in this uh, this loop here at Virginia Tech for the last you know, eight or nine years with a brief respite or respite for uh, Fuente when he immediately got hired here. I wanted to get it because, I mean, you guys are more plugged into the ACC than I, than I am. Um, you know, there's a lot written about, like, you know, ACC's media deal and, like, how Notre Dame fits into that or doesn't fit into that. Like, like Andy, what's the – like as a beat reporter at uh, an ACC school, like what is the perception of Notre Dame 
Is it helping the league? Is it hurting the league? Is it doing both? Like what, how, how do people feel about Notre Dame? Well, they feel a way that is not consistent with what the reality is. The reality is that Notre Dame helps the conference immensely. They wouldn't have a network right now if it right. weren't for Notre Dame. They wouldn't have a grant of rights, I don't think, if it weren't for Notre Dame. Uh, but the public perceives it, uh, a lot of them, I think, perceive it as Notre Dame is leeching off the ACC. and Oh, they're making money off of it, even though you look at the media deal, it's such a small fraction of a payout they get. Uh, I think you look at the the thing last year with the uh, you know, the pandemic and the ACC welcoming Notre Dame in for the year, and a lot of people are like you need to play hardball with Notre Dame and say be a full time member or, or get lost in this season. It's just like, do you have any sense of reality on this? Like they hold all the power. Notre Dame holds all the power. Uh, they're doing you a favor with this five game scheduling arrangement every year because. You know, these ACC schools sell out every time Notre Dame comes to town. These games are the most watched games on the broadcast options. Uh, you know, people travel to South Bend like it's Mecca, like it's, it's some sort of uh, pilgrimage that they have to make to go up there uh, to go to this game. So, like, they can say one thing about how they're so upset about how Notre Dame is its an unfair deal and they should be all in or all out, And but the reality is it's very beneficial to the ACC and... Uh, I think if people were honest with themselves, they would come out and admit that. Yeah, I mean, I think just to add on to that, I get why fans of other teams, particularly coaches of other teams, feel the way they do. I mean, if you look at it, like removing history and money from the equation, yeah, the math doesn't exactly <laughs> just add up did here. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, the part that, that you know, with, with no investment on either side whatsoever just frustrates me in no end is, like, Notre Dame is playing Virginia Tech for the fourth time in six years now. How many ACC teams has Virginia Tech not played that much over that same time period? And yet they're conference members with these teams and they're not conference members with Notre Dame. And that's not unique to Virginia Tech. That's everyone in the ACC because of their eight-game <clears throat> eight schedule. So that part is just frustrating from a fan perspective. But you're right. I don't think they have a network without Notre Dame. More importantly, they don't have a grant of rights. Um, obviously, that network deal is so bad right now compared to the other conferences. And the, they're falling so far behind from the other Power Five conferences that you can make the argument that that was a bad deal, but um, they might have just fallen apart during this round of realignment without that grant of rights as well. So um, the ACC championship game ratings were through the roof last year with Notre Dame and Clemson in it with two playoff teams. Um, but the one part that was interesting to me talking to someone in the ACC this week for a story I did was, hey, if we want these guys in full time, why would we ever rubber stamp a 12-team playoff? Because the only thing that's going to get these guys in full time is to eliminate access to a championship. And if there's a 12-team playoff, they can make it pretty much every year with the way they're playing right now. And have no, no, like there's nothing to force their hand whatsoever. I'm not sure there is a way to force their hand um, regardless, but that part was an interesting point that was brought up to me this week. Well, it's like when the ACC championship game is Pitt-Wake Forest, I'll be curious to see how that rating stacks up against Notre Dame-Clemson from last year. Could be a playoff playing game or Kenny Heisman game. I don't know. <laughs> Jim Phillips has to just be like trembling at trying to market a Wake Forest-Pitt ACC championship game. It's just like, oh my gosh. Pickett, Hartman, get some. Like, how do you... How do you market that game? I mean, that, that, don't get me wrong. That could be a very entertaining game, uh, the way those two teams are playing. But just in terms of like drawing in the casual fan, probably not going to do the trick. If, it's no. a play, if, Wake, if Wake's undefeated, people will watch. If the ACC is playing for a playoff spot, 
I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Wake uh, Forest will not be undefeated at that point. Yeah, we'll see if they – will the ACC be smart enough not to put that up directly against Alabama, Georgia? Uh, was that well? <laughs> no, it, it's a day game. I don't know what the SEC is, but they already announced. ACC, I, or is it? I no, no, it's a night game. It's a night game. ACC is the right. night yeah, game. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what the SEC is, but um, the SEC does whatever it wants. So that's right. Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they're going to be like, ah, oh, Jim Phillips. We're, we're going to cut you a break on this one. So the, the, everyone has to watch Pit Wake. The interesting part for me, not to go off on too much tangent here, but last week ESPN has their SEC triple header and they have game day in Athens and all this. And the, the commercial was advertising the SEC triple header and the voiceover was Joe Tessitore. It said something to the effect of, you know, and you know how Joe Tessitore, there's college football and there's SEC football. And it's like, get ready for that for all of eternity when they get Oklahoma and Texas. Like that league is literally going to pretend the rest of the sport doesn't exist the same way they're trying to pretend that the SEC doesn't exist with this Alliance, which is going to be, Hilarious if those three conferences get left out of the playoff this year, but that's another rant for another day. But Cincinnati has a chance to make that happen. For the record, uh, the Google.com spits out that the SEC championship game is at 4 p.m. on no Saturday, December Perfect. 4th. Okay. Get great. your popcorn ready, Lane Kiffin. So I guess with Virginia Tech, since we're talking referendums and Armageddons and all that good stuff, like, is there. What do you feel like is a Virginia Tech capable of getting back to what it was 20 years ago, 15 years ago? Um, not like at Michael Vick levels necessarily, but you know, more of a consistent 10 and 2, a New Year's Six participant. Um, you know, maybe viewed again the way that people for some reason think North Carolina is a 10 and 2 team when they're not. Like, but it is sort of like the second team in the league, like the top first in line in the group after Clemson. Is that, is that reasonable there? I think it is reasonable. And I've written a lot about sort of the financial situation. And you look at how Clemson took off and Virginia tech kind of sputtered there in the 2010s. A lot of it is, is looking at uh, how, you know, financially healthy they were as programs. And Clemson really continued to invest and just sort of shot up and athletic department revenue and, Virginia Tech increased, but not nearly at the same rate. Fell behind a little bit in that sense. I think the Hokies are making an effort to close that gap a bit. They're never going to spend like Florida State does and like Clemson does. That's just probably an unrealistic uh, goal to have there. But they can certainly do better than or be on par with Virginia and North Carolina, be better than them. They have a, a fundraising campaign aimed at just that right now. And they're putting a lot of money into uh, uh, assistant salaries and staff size. <clears throat> Other things like that around the program to sort of get it back on par. Because I think for a while they, they took their eye off the prize with that for a while. When you have somebody like Frank Beamer around for so long that had success for so long, you're like, well, why do we need to continue spending on this? I mean, Bud Foster got up to a million dollar salary as a coordinator by I think his last year, second to last year. And that's a bargain by today's prices. You look at what some of these SEC schools, I mean, if you're going to keep a top tier defensive coordinator, is a million dollars going to do it? I, I don't know. Probably not in this day and age. So I think they fell behind on that a little bit, but they've made efforts uh, to make ground up there. Their facilities are really good. They just went through renovations for their weight room. They've got an indoor facility and, 
a new uh, dining hall and everything like that. I mean, there's there's things in place for this to be successful here. The thing I wonder is Frank Beamer found a, a method for succeeding in Southwest Virginia, recruiting-wise. He was able to mine the state. Uh, when the 757 was really good down here, he would go down there, and they were just crushing it in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, they did very well in Richmond, Northern Virginia, went out of state when they need to. And I'm curious how well a different coach is able to do that. Cause Justin Fuente hasn't really hit that chord yet in the state. And, uh, they, they've done better this year. I'll give them credit on that front. And they've pulled a couple guys there, but you know, can they recruit like they used to? Can they find those guys that are maybe undervalued and turn them into really serviceable and very good starters it was a formula that Frank Beamer found, and he was a hall, he's a Hall of Fame coach for a reason. And I'm wondering if you need a Hall of Fame coach to achieve that at Virginia Tech or if just some regular old coach can achieve that. And sort of That's an unanswered question right now. But I look at the finances, I look at the facilities, I look at the tradition, uh, everything associated with the program, and I look at it and I go, why can't they be better than everybody but Clemson or if Florida State ever sorts itself out? Uh, you know, Florida State would be probably be up there in the conference as well, but they, they should be up there among the top two or three every year just based on everything they have at this program, I would think. Yeah, the, the money thing, using the Foster example, I mean, that's at this point, that's an ACC problem as much as it is a Virginia Tech problem. I mean, I had it in my ACC story this week. You know, look at the USA Today salaries for bat, men's basketball coaches. The ACC is a basketball conference, right? The SEC isn't. The SEC is still outspending the ACC in that department, and that's including Coach K, who's making $8 million a year, and Roy Williams, who came off the books this year as well. So that gap is only growing financially. And again, I, you know, short of adding Notre Dame, and I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do close that gap. Um, Andy, what's the biggest change with this program since these two teams last met, aside from obviously no more Bud Foster? Well, you take away the biggest change between the programs. That, what am I supposed to say since then? It's obviously Bud Foster. I mean, he was there for 35 years. That's the biggest change. Um, I'm trying to think of a big change otherwise. It feels like it's kind of the same program other than that. I mean, defensive approach and and things like that. When you have an icon like Bud that was around forever, the, this program was always going to be associated with him. And uh, that sort of tied back to Frank Beamer and everything. This feels like, you know, this is Justin Fuente's team now. This is just the, you've sort of, I mean, Bud is still around and he's still sort of an ambassador for Virginia Tech, whatever term that they want to say with that position. Uh, But they've cut the cord from that era a little bit. And Frank is still around too. And they still do, uh, you know, the, the number 25 jersey to honor him and things like that. So it's not like they've forgotten the past, but for better or for worse, this is Justin Fuente's program. And these are his hires he put in place, even though uh, Justin Hamilton's a, a Bud Foster protege. Jack Tyler, the linebacker's coach, played for Bud Foster. There's a lot of ties to this defense, but this is Fuente's team. And this is Fuente's staff that he's assembled. This is Fuente's players. Uh, his recruits, there's, I think, one holdover, Tyrell Smith from the Frank Beamer era, and that's only because he's a seventh-year senior who <laughs> must must have several doctorates at this point uh, in his college uh, career there. So I think compared to a couple years ago, this feels very much like Fuente's team, and there, there's sort of that divide in the program's history. So I guess whether this game may not swing a whole lot for Virginia Tech season, it's not a conference game, they're not, you know, 
in the playoff mix. Does this does this game have a whole lot to say about or inform whether Fuente continues on after the season? I mean, we talked about him on the hot seat already. Like once you're on, with the exception of the guy that Matt and I cover here, like it's very very hard to coach your way off of it. Um, where ultimately, like what what will it what will it take for him to sort of continue on after the season? Well, I don't just with regards to Notre Dame. I think losing to the number 14th ranked team in the country, there'd be no shame in that. I mean, they are underdogs, slight underdogs, I think, in this game. The line's like one, one and a half for Notre Dame. Uh, if they were to lose in a fashion that was like 13 to 10 or something like that, where you get this tremendous defensive effort or from the looks of the way Notre Dame's been playing, an average defensive effort and only give up 13 points and you can't win that game at home. You can't score two touchdowns at home to win the game. I think that's a very different conversation than if you lose this game 28 to 27 and it was an offensive back and forth and you know you just didn't come through in that game. If it's offensive ineptitude again and that's the reason why you don't come out on top. I think that just enrages people even further from what they are. Otherwise, I don't think this game plays uh, too much into the big picture. I think it's going to be how, how does they fare? How does Fuente and the Hokies fare in the coastal division? And that's a very low bar to set because the coastal division is so wide open every year. But I think by the end of the year, this will sort of be forgotten. This is still early in the season. It's how do you finish? How do you do against Miami and UVA at the tail end of the year? Uh, can you go up there and win a very winnable division? And if you can't, if it doesn't happen this year, when is it going to happen? I mean, this is a year that it, it very much is within reach. And if you can't do that in year six again, I keep going back to that. This has been a while that they've been able to sort of turn this thing around. It makes you wonder if he's ever, ever going to get to that level again. So what do you think happens this weekend, Andy? I, I read your prediction in your Q&A with Pete, but go a little more in, in depth as why you think uh, Notre Dame wins. <laughs> well, I think both offenses are pretty lousy. Uh, so I, I pick a neither team. analytical neither team, yeah, neither team to get to 20 points in this one. I, for the listeners that haven't read it, I picked Notre Dame 19 to 17. And Pete, were talking, Pete and I were talking about uh, before this podcast, we're like, it's going to be a weird score. It's not going to be like <laughs> 31 to 28 or something where that you can get to easily with touchdowns and field goals. It's going to be something odd like that. And I think the weather might be pretty bad, so that, that could make it even worse. I just – I know Notre Dame is struggling to run the ball, but I see those two running backs, and I'm like, they're just going to break one. They're going to break one or two. They're going to have that moment that they do that. And then I look at Virginia Tech's team, and I'm like, who's going to do that on that side of the ball? I, I just don't see them moving the ball that well. And unless the quarterback play improves dramatically, I just can't see them scoring a bunch of points. So Notre Dame might not be much offensively, but I think they might be more than Virginia Tech is offensively this week. So I, I have the Irish in a very low-scoring game. Yeah, it's like I can sort of feel the same way. The score is going to be weird. I think I went Notre Dame 25, Virginia Tech 19. I have no idea how you could get 25 to that for Beamer. Good, nice, yeah. nice stop. Nicely done. Actually, it's for Chris Tyree. Um, oh, my bad. Yeah, they, they got you know, the Virginia product who got away a little bit. We actually talked to him this week. He said he had visited Virginia Tech like five or six times uh, and actually was in the recruiting section for Notre Dame's last visit to Blacksburg um, as a Virginia Tech recruit at the time. Um, and then he was like, yeah, they weren't my final three. 
but uh, yeah, he p- he picked Notre <laughs> yeah. Dame pretty quick. It was yeah. like May or something like that. It's like I know he was one of their top targets, but it was they were out quickly. It wasn't yes. even like uh, uh, and, so. I I agree with what Andy's saying. And ultimately, I think this is why. Like, I'm actually fairly confident Notre Dame is going to win the game, even though I'm the score makes it look unconfident. Um, Virginia Tech doesn't have a Michael Mayer, or Chris Tyree, a Kyron Williams, um, you know, even a Kevin Austin, as long as Virginia Tech doesn't get Sauce Gardner out of the transfer portal this week. Um, he should play really well, too. I just – Notre Dame's skill position talent for how bad the offense, I think, is actually kind of underrated um, because they can't score points consistently. They can't run the ball. But it has nothing to do with the running back. It has nothing to do with the tight end. It has nothing to do with the receivers. I think this is sort of a game where – Though that those positions sort of get to stretch a little bit, um, so I could I could see Notre Dame getting into the 30s based on like the big plays that that Andy referenced, but I'll back down a little bit for that. So Notre Dame 25, Virginia Tech 19. Boy, that is a weird score, and I think that's just over, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's uh, oh no, no, that's under. Sorry, 47 and a half, Notre Dame minus one. Right now, I think it opened at forty-four and a half. Uh, to tell you, so there must be a, a surge in betting that people think it's going to be a shootout to, to raise it a couple points. I don't know, Andy. When you said it might be wet, I was getting flashbacks to that NC State game in twenty sixteen in a hurricane, which hopefully for Pete's <laughs> parking situation doesn't. Oh God, um, end up happening. That was one of the best weekends the the Hokies ever played. They went down to UNC and they just demolished Mitch Trubisky and, and UNC. And uh, I think it was like 34 And the Bears still drafted him second overall right yeah. after that. It's incredible. 34-3 or something like that. And North Carolina fans now, and it irks Virginia Tech fans to no end. They're like, well, if it weren't for the hurricane. <laughs> and it's like, okay, if it weren't for the weather conditions that the game was played in. It's like, that kind of matters, people. So to add another thing on why Virginia Tech fans hate North Carolina fans so much. That, that, that was, was when spot. Larry and Fuente got into it, right? Larry Fedora, if I'm not mistaken. They were very frosty with each other. It was a little frosty. I mean, the previous year, uh, Virginia Tech had beaten them 59-7. to Or maybe that was the next year. Maybe that was 2017. It was 59-7. to So whatever it was, I think there was a little uh, animosity between those two. <laughs> well, that's neither here nor there. Um, look, I agree with everything both of you guys said. Notre Dame, I think, is a better team. They have better players. Uh there are questions like we don't know who's going to start quarterback. We think it's going to be Drew Pine. I mean, I think if, if it wasn't Drew Pine, they wouldn't make such a big deal out of this, and they would have told us already. Um, they brought out walk-ons and Chris Tyree to talk to the media last night as sort of a diversion from giving away any secrets, and then a walk-on dropped an F-bomb on camera, so serves them right. Um, and, <laughs> like, I just don't know how well this Notre Dame team responds to losses. I mean, they should have – they were significantly better – than Virginia Tech in 2019, but coming off that Michigan loss a week earlier, I mean, Virginia Tech wins that game if they're not starting their third-string quarterback in Quincy Patterson that day. Like, it, it took a, a miracle final drive by Notre Dame to beat a team that they should have easily handled. So I, I wonder about the mental state of Notre Dame right now. That said, I, I, I just think they've got better players in Virginia Tech, and at the end of the day, that's going to that's gonna matter. Uh, 24-17, Notre Dame. Too common of a score, Fortuna. Just very. I had to. You guys were yeah. being way yeah. too yeah. crazy for me. I had to like so center that's, this podcast. That's eight field goals for Notre Dame, <laughs> yeah. and in the rain, <laughs> a safety and five field goals for Virginia Tech. That sounds about right. Okay, now that I could get behind. Uh, so, 
yeah, we will wrap up on that. I will be down in Blacksburg with Andy in the press box on Saturday night. Matt, I don't know if you're going anywhere. You'll get to. Can you even watch the game? YouTube TV. It's on the, I, oh, okay. yeah, I am, I am ACC Network through and through. Okay, good. You're a supporter of the league. That Jim Phillips appreciates your uh, your patron. Hey, they did a segment interviewing a colleague named Pete Sampson a couple years ago with one of those Zach Gilfinakis. Uh, Jeff, so I, I had to support if for no other reason, knowing I might get to see my colleague do an interview there from his I appreciate home that. Base. I appreciate that. So, on that note, we will wrap up this edition of the Shamrock. Andy, thanks for joining us on the show. Matt, you're, you have to be here, so I'm not going to thank you for, for being our, my co-host. I'm Pete Sampson. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Shamrock.